Welcome to Tilth Talk Radio. Today we've got a special episode for you. We'll be interviewing our guest, Jeff Smutty, Director of Environmental Programs at New Water. But before we get to him, we've got our regular crew here. So with me today are Bill Schaumburg. Hey, guys. Todd Schaumburg. Hey to all the Tilthies out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Ch- Tilth Agronomy. So today we've been joined by someone we've known for a while. Uh, been a few years that we've worked together, but uh, we want to welcome Jeff Smutty. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Good morning. Good. Thanks for having me tonight. More than a few years. Yeah. How many years has it been since we started working together with New Water? I think we started working together back in 2014. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Kind of so our kickoff. Yes. It's been, we're coming, this year's a decade. It has yeah. been. You're right. Wow. This summer, I think you'd be right. Yeah. Cool. Well, <clears throat> we want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. And I guess just to get things going here for people that don't know, what is New Water? Sure. Well, New Water or the brand of the Green Bay Metropolitan Sewage District, um, we're a regional clean water utility. We were established back in 1931. So we're actually a wholesale provider of wastewater collection and treatment services um, to 15 customers in Northeast Wisconsin. Uh, We serve 238,000 residential and customers, uh, business customers, and we own and operate two treatment facilities. So one is in Green Bay. It's right at the mouth of the river, um, not too far from Bay Beach. And the other facility is in De Pere, right next to the Brown County Fairgrounds. Um, So between those two facilities, um, on a daily basis, we treat about 41 million gallons of water. Um, Just some fun facts, you know, we have... Uh, between those facilities, over 78 miles of interceptors, about 600 pumps, 1,200 manholes, and last year we treated about 15 billion gallons of water before we returned it back to the bay. Wow. All those numbers got to say 16, <clears throat> how, how, wait, 600 pumps, you said? Correct. I, honestly, I would guess it would be more, but at the same time, 600 pumps would be a lot to fix as well. <laughs> right. Yeah, the maintenance when, on that. Like. One person can't get to every one of those pumps in a whole year, probably. Uh, definitely not. No, we have a crew of maintenance staff and electrical and instrumentation techs that take care of that equipment at our facilities and out in the... There are meter and lift stations throughout the communities that help bring that wastewater flow, um, mostly by gravity, uh, but there are places where it needs to get lifted up and then flow by gravity again to get to those two facilities. It's just because it was 15 billion with a B, right? That's correct. <clears throat> 15 billion with a B. I, I can't even, like, in my mind, imagine that volume of water. Like, do you... <clears throat> Especially because you know what, like, a 10 million gallon manure pit is? How right. Big, how big that is? You know, add way more. <laughs> yeah, a lot more. Our engineering staff right now is actually uh, working with Lambeau Field to quantify if you were to put water in Lambeau Field, how many million gallons of water that would be. So I don't have it today, uh, but sometime <laughs> in the near future, we'll be able to give you that fun fact. If, of if, if Lambeau were, was a pond. If yeah. Lambeau was a pond, how many million gallons would it be? I don't think you hit the billions, but it would be millions of okay. gallons there. So then we could multiply out how many Lambeau Fields it would take to process 15 billion, billion. gallons. That's correct. Which would yes. be able, probably still a lot. Yes. Even the size of the this, I, some of these are called like a you call it a sewage district or something like that, right, Jeff? And yes. compared to Milwaukee, Milwaukee's bigger, but 
we're close to you're close to Madison in size. Correct. Would you say? Yeah. So yeah, Green Bay is one of the three biggest in the state. Um, serve most of Northeast Wisconsin, as I said, mm-hmm. and Milwaukee is bigger, very close in size to Madison, um, and a lot of that is because of the larger regional area that we serve. Um, being that you know larger part of Northeast Wisconsin, when you get north of um, De Pere, uh, excuse me, actually north of Wrightstown, all the way up the Bayshore uh, to Dykesville west as far as uh, Pulaski and everything in between. It's crazy that Pulaski goes there. That pipe from Pulaski's got to be... It's a long huge. pipeline. Yeah, and long, yeah. yeah it takes long. a little bit longer do for you the know flow how, there. How size the size of the pipe? I do not know no. the exact size of that pipe. It's like Pulaski. those uh, three-foot gas lines, you know. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just expecting it to be a big... I think it's not nearly that large. No. It's, it's, I would have to guess in the ballpark of 18 to 24 inches sure. at most. It's still a lot of but even just a steady flow coming from yeah. there, yeah, yeah. The largest pipe we do have at our facility is a 108 inch interceptor. That's what Jeez. comes into the pump station. Sure. Uh, so that would be coming down as you come to our facility, Quincy Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a 108 inch interceptor, so I could walk through that pipe um, as it enters our facility. Wow. And that's is it like right under the road? The road basically is held up by this interceptor. Since it's that big? Or? Um, well, it is underneath the roadway, and that's why you'll see a series of manholes um, sure. beneath that road to sure. access that for, for cleaning, inspection, and, and other things. <laughs> so next time you're headed to Bay Beach, just keep going, right? Just Then you can check out your... That's right. If you, well, I mean, you can see it right from the highway, the, f- the facility there. So You can, right from the Tower Drive Bridge or the Leo Frigo Bridge, as it's called now. Do you give tours? We give a lot of tours, yes. Um, we have staff that would love to have people come in and take a tour. Um, there's actually an opportunity on our website that you can sign up, um, express your interest in a tour, your size, and, and so forth. We have student groups. We have college, um, high school groups, you name it, um, just local community groups that come in and tour the facility. It's really impressive. I mean, most people leave, and their answer, you know, their response is, wow, um, I had no idea this was even here or what you did, or how, complica- you know, how complicated or how complex it really is um, for this process. There's a lot of technology, a lot of equipment. Um, there's just a lot goes into the process, and it's big. It's, it's like a college campus if you've ever walked around a facility uh, between a series of buildings and, and all the basins and interconnected by almost a couple miles of tunnel underground uh, between the buildings at the Green Bay facility in particular. Um, it's, a, it's a lot. Um, so it's a great opportunity if anybody's ever interested to check it out. We were joking before we started recording about, you know, during polka days having to supercharge that pipe coming from, from Pulaski, but um, you, you had a really interesting fact for us, not with the Pulaski pipe, but with Lambeau Field that I, I think you'd be awesome if you'd share. Sure. So there's always this question about, um, you know, how do, how do Packer games affect our flow? Do we see a big halftime flush, you know? And there is actually a large um, holding tank beneath the parking lot of Lambeau Field. I believe it's a couple million gallons, and that is designed to absorb that large amount of flow or hold that flow um, from that surge of, of use at the Packer Games, and then that's slowly um, let out into the sewer system so that otherwise they would basically have to put a much larger pipe in, right. leaving Lambeau Field, and it would cause downstream issues most likely. So to have that ability to, to hold that up, you know, slow that down, and then slowly release it, um, it may be a day or so after the game before that empties out, I would imagine. That's neat. Think about, like, <clears throat> this last home game, the last home game of the season was all the Bear fans there. So I'm sure they just 
try to destroy our bathrooms <laughs> after, but luckily we have this system set up. So they, well, and who's going to have to clean all those Justin Fields jerseys out of <laughs> right. the holding tank <laughs> after the game? Right? <laughs> Too soon? No. All right. <clears throat> there may be, though, a, like a halftime flush of people at home watching the game, right? Like, at some point, they always talk about it at the Super Bowl, right? Like, the most no, water use in the world is halftime of the Super Yeah, that's Bowl true, too, is think like of just not only the people coming to Lambeau, but just coming to the Green Bay area for a game. The whole system's got to be, you know, on overload. Is there any other times of year that you see that or have any other events like that? Um, you know, I would definitely say, like you said, a Packer game. I would imagine, you know, they're talking about the, the draft, the NFL draft. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, things like that, absolutely. You know, just having more people in businesses in 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 residential places, you will see an increase in flow. Um, we actually see a decrease in flows over some holidays, like Fourth of July holiday. You'll often see the flow decrease because so many people leave town, sure. you know, head to their cabins, go traveling el- elsewhere. Don't want to go back in the house. They just town's just taking a leak right. outside. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, find the bushes <laughs> the outside. Yard. Yeah, uh, but there there are times of the year. Um, where that that flow does change just based on what's happening in the community. I do feel we take for granted, like your tour opportunity is a great one because you just take for granted, you flush the toilet and it goes away, hopefully, (laughs) the first time. And then you just kind of, you know, you're just like, not my problem anymore. And you walk away. And yes, I I think that whole part of it, even you talked about the infrastructure at the plant, but even just the infrastructure under the roads, is just amazing, you know, the miles and miles of that infrastructure just to get it to the plant and then what what you have to do at the plant. So it's, it is pretty neat. Yeah, right? In ag, we see the full circle with the cows. We know what goes in and comes out, where it goes. But, yeah, from from ourselves, you know, we talk about farm to table and that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, your food gets there. But, yeah, we don't think about where it goes after we're done with it. So It's pretty common you hear flush and forget, right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the common yeah. term, flush it and forget it. And uh, there, there is a whole network of, of, you know, pipes that take it to the treatment facility. You start with your, your water supply to the home, and then from there, um, there's, you know, the residents typically own the laterals from their home out to the street. And then the local community, whether it's Green Bay, De Pere, Eshwabanon, um, they will own their sewer systems that then connect to the large interceptors that New Water owns. So we own just the largest laterals going out to communities or the largest interceptors out to those communities, and then the communities maintain their own sewer system as well. So there, there's a whole network beyond, you know, the stats I gave earlier about manholes and pumps and lifts and so forth that the communities themselves maintain too. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy. Um, so any way we can, you know, minimize the usage of, of water um, saves a lot of time and energy um, on our end. Is there one part of the treatment process that's like the hardest or the thing that the plant struggles with the most? Um, you know, probably when we, when we see a lot of rainwater, um, and I'll I'll maybe talk about this a little bit later, but, um, there's kind of this, what we call infiltration and inflow. And what that is just because of pipes being in the ground, when we see saturated soil and we get a lot of rain, um, through either, you know, pro- actually prohibited um, some pump connections to the sanitary sewer. Um, because I should point out that Green Bay is a separated sewer system. So the storm sewer goes directly to the river. Mm. 
and um, all the sanitary sewer water goes to the treatment facility. Well, there are still some older homes that have prohibited connections of their sump pump to the sanitary sewer. Uh, there are, you know, just through time, there's roots that grow into, you know, pipes and, and do cause small openings that saturated soil, heavy rains, you will see a pretty large rise in flow. And that, uh, that inflow and infiltration, or INI as we call it, can really stress the treatment facility. So um, much more influence than a Packer game if we have wet ground in the spring and we get a very heavy rain, uh, we will see a pretty sharp spike in flow at both of our treatment facilities. And that's one of the things we're working on pretty heavily, uh, trying to rehab our facility through our, our pipe system, but then work with our local communities to try to minimize that flow as well. Because it, I mean, it it really stresses the system. We have nearly reached max capacity a few times where you just can't take any more in. Um, and the last thing you want to do is start to back up sewers um, into communities and then into homes as well. So, um, Does Plasky get shut off first? Is that part of the rule? Or? <laughs> no, no, whoever's no, last time. Not, not necessarily. Um, but it, that I would say that, you know, outside of like a specific part of the process, Rainwater infiltration yeah. is a really big stressor. Um, so, so with the drought this year, you probably didn't see as big of impact throughout the year. I mean, obviously, we're still somewhat wet this spring for a little while. Right. Um, Certainly. Saturated ground. I mean, when you see a big rain coming on saturated ground, that is absolutely the, the quickest response. Sure. Um, so our, our operations staff are, are half meteorologists looking at the forecast sure. and trying to figure out if they need to put extra tanks online and, and get prepared for it. Um, but it's a really interesting process. Otherwise, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, physical aspects of the process using settling, and uh, there's biological components. There's an aeration basin that, you know, we use biological treatment to remove a lot of the, the nutrients and a lot of the components in the wastewater. And then uh, at the tail end, it goes through a disinfection process. Um, our Green Bay facility uses a, a chemical um, disinfection process where at De Pere it uses a, a UV disinfection, so ultraviolet disinfection process to get that um, all the bacteria killed um, in that before it's returned to the, the Fox River. So both of our facilities do discharge directly to the Fox River um, near the you know their respective facilities. So when you're <clears throat> talking, obviously, the metropolitan side of things of pulling in from all these different communities... Um, that kind of leads us into why we work together, and that's adaptive management. So can you explain adaptive management a little bit and then why New Water chose to go that route? Sure. Um, well, adaptive management is a bit of a different um, program with New Water. So our primary business historically was you know, collecting and treating wastewater for northeast Wisconsin. And we, uh, we have a... a Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources discharge permit that we have to meet. Um, so the, the water leaving both treatment facilities has to meet those permit limits every year. And we found that those permit limits were becoming more strict, especially for phosphorus and total suspended solids, or you often think of that as sediment. So um, with those two components becoming more difficult to meet and having even lower limits ratcheting down in the future, uh, we had to start looking at more cost-effective ways to meet our future limits. So um, we would traditionally, you know, we're kind of a, an engineering design-build type organization. So you'd typically design some, some new treatment technology 
new tankage, new equipment, new new whatever it takes, and we would install that at our facility. So we call that gray infrastructure, you know, something we construct. Well, that gets very expensive as you get down into smaller and smaller fractions of especially phosphorus. So at the same time that we found out about these ratcheting lower limits, uh, we were also given some opportunities, and um, a few of those opportunities were either to look at water quality trading adaptive management, or a multi-discharge variance. Now, a lot of fancy terms, but ultimately they're all, rather than working just in the sewer service area, um, working more out in the watershed. So looking at conservation practices to um, help improve water quality that reach the stream, and um, and then ultimately helping clean up um, Green Bay. So if you think about it as kind of a one-water um, scenario, the water that leaves our treatment facilities enters the Fox River and the Bay of Green Bay. All of the water from the watershed, um, whether it be in urban areas, rural areas, all that water eventually makes its way into a local stream, a creek, a stream, the Fox River, and Green Bay. So in the big picture, um, you know, it's about removing those nutrients from the Bay of Green Bay. So long story short, um, we had these opportunities to look at something different besides just wastewater treatment. So um, in 2013, we kicked off a pilot project in the Silver Creek watershed, so not too far from the Austin Straubel Airport in Green Bay. Um, New Water did not have experience working in the watershed, so we wanted to, to have a pilot project to kind of experiment with how this would work. And uh, this is where we started working together uh, between Tilth Agronomy and New Water. So um, we focused primarily on agricultural lands in that area, and we partnered with Outagamie County Land Conservation Oneida Nation, Tilth Agronomy, um, a number of other nonprofit organizations um, like Ducks Unlimited, the Nature Conservancy, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, all these different organizations. We worked together to see if we could more cost-effectively um, improve water quality by installing conservation and agricultural land. Um, so that project um, went on for over five years. And we proved that by working together, um, I'll say we, because it's this group here today and, and others, uh, by working together, we could um, more cost-effectively remove more nutrients and more sediment from the stream than we would by doing it at our treatment facility. So we really we dove into this and um, used that pilot study as a, a really great example of um, how we could do it, how we could form those partnerships um, if we could, you know, work out in agricultural lands like we had not done before, um, leveraging a lot of the relationships that that folks like yourselves and the county land conservation departments have, and then use those relationships to to work with the farmers, the landowners, and and see some improvements. Um, the really exciting thing is we were able to take the results of that pilot study and prove that we could definitely be more cost effective um, using this watershed approach. So. Our best estimate is that um, that gray infrastructure, adding some type of treatment processes at our facilities, uh, would have been would have cost somewhere in the one hundred million dollar range. So that's construction and then operation and maintenance cost of that facility. So there's electricity and there's chemical. There's different things that go into that. Um, but using a watershed approach, um, adaptive management, as you referenced, um, is less than half that. So we're thinking somewhere between 40 and $50 million over the course of 20 years to meet those permit limits, uh, which is significant cost savings to all of our customers, mm -hmm. all the ratepayers that that we have at our facility, and 
we also can have far greater environmental benefits and improved water quality by doing that rather than trying to take those smallest fractions out of the very, very end of our wastewater treatment facility. Uh, we can have, we can start to see improvements in the stream, um, visible water quality improvements, cleaner water, um, and a lot of community benefits as well. You're going to see that cleaner water further up into the river, right? You know, backwards from the bay, right? You're going to see a, a cleaner stream, a nicer looking river, not just, oh, we're just going to treat it at the mouth and whatever comes our way, we're going to deal with, and then we'll treat it at that point. Let's, let's work backwards. Right. Absolutely. I mean, especially our Green Bay facility is right at the mouth of the Fox River. Uh, our discharge of, from our facility is within 100 feet of the Bay of Green Bay. Um, so you may see the improvements in the bay, but nothing upstream would really show. So by working in this watershed approach, absolutely, uh, you start to see improvements in, in the case of our pilot project, um, Silver Creek. You know, we started to see some noticeable improvements in water quality visually. Um, we have, we've done biological monitoring in that stream, so looking at the fish and all the little invertebrates, the insects that live in the stream. And we were able to, over the course of that project, start to see um, different organisms show up that indicated better health of the stream that were not there before. So now you have more, more insects, more fish, um, visibly better water quality, and even some improvements in, you know, when you take samples, water quality improvements there as well. That was always a fun meeting, Jeff, when we'd go to that and the biologist would give his breakdown of all these crazy different like midges and just whatever he would visualize or see in the samples versus what was there. And you're exactly right. I remember him saying like, this is not normal. Like we're seeing some good things here. So that's cool. Right. And I can't even quote all the, no. the really exciting organisms, but um, I'm not a microbiologist, but I mean, it was, there were things that was like, oh my gosh, we've never seen this particular insect in a stream you know in this part of wisconsin before so this has to be really showing some great improvement so that's pretty exciting i mean everything shows that biology in the stream will show the first improvements before measured water quality um so i mean it makes sense right your insects all of your fish will will respond quicker and, and you'd be able to see it there before you might be able to measure reduction in phosphorus for example or total suspended solids. So definitely there are some definite impacts upstream from our treatment facility into these regional waters, these streams that, um, you know, everybody can enjoy. Um, I think anybody would, would love to have a, a cleaner, you know, more pristine stream in their backyard or through their community, through the urban areas of Green Bay. And um, to have that influence upstream from our treatment facilities is really, really important for us. So obviously, you know, we here talking to you have an idea of the scope of the project, but um, what I guess have you seen from the new water perspective as being the biggest accomplishment so far in, in the adaptive management program? So in the adaptive management program, I mean, after this pilot project, we were able to work with DNR and um, write up a plan that they were able to approve for our permit. And that, you know, locked us in for over a 20-year period of time, or four, five-year permit terms, um, to focus on this adaptive management efforts. And now, post-pilot project, so after Silver Creek, we've started focusing on Eshwabanon Creek and Dutchman Creek watersheds. So trying to really push our efforts in those two areas. Um, and both of those streams do enter the Lower Fox River and then eventually Green Bay. Um, you know, I think 
for me at a really high level, some of the most exciting things is, is the partnerships that we've formed and the ability to work together. There, there's always been some great initiatives, but I think when you pool your resources together, you can really see a lot of improvements. So having um, meetings and conversations where we bring county land conservation together with a local wastewater treatment facility, some agronomy um, staff like yourselves and others from around the area. Um, I mentioned, you know, Ducks Unlimited, the Nature Conservancy, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, all of them have um, programs, projects, efforts in the area. But when we pool all of our, our knowledge and expertise together and, and make that into a project, we can we can accomplish a whole lot more than we would accomplish alone, for sure. Yeah, and I think we've seen, <clears throat> in general, farms are becoming more... Um, welcoming to the idea of like cover crops have been become more common no-till um to an extent is is out there and then there's lots of other practices and we've got some pretty progressive farms in that the Schwabenon creek dutchman creek area um that are looking to to adapt these practices and one of the things i think from the agricultural side that um, some of these farms are familiar with is the permit process like you mentioned larger farms are permitted so they have you know the discharge components, but a lot of these smaller farms don't necessarily think in those terms because they're not dealing with the permit side of things. And I think that's been an interesting um, learning perspective for some of the farms and thinking more in that way of like the end end point of where everything goes, as opposed to you know my farm it goes on my fields, I manage it this way. Um, so I think that's been a valuable insight for a lot of a lot of the smaller growers that are that haven't dealt with that before. I would agree. I, I think um, one of the neat opportunities with this program is it has brought more folks together that haven't traditionally worked together um, between, I'll call it urban and agricultural and more rural environments. Um, we really tried hard to get away from finger pointing and saying, well, it must be the industry. It must be, you know, stormwater runoff in, in these bigger communities, or it must be agricultural um, it's the runoff from the you know the farm fields. It's all the above. Um, so the more that we can each address our conditions, our issues at hand, um, and make those you know incremental improvements at all the all those places, including wastewater treatment facilities like New Water, um, we can start to see some really nice improvements in water quality. So it's it's a community wide problem, and it requires a community wide approach. And I, I think that's one of the things I'm. I'm most proud of is just that everybody has really come together and and has really been open and in, in sharing ideas and thoughts of what they could do on their particular um you know from their their angle from where they what they can influence that's a good point jeff i've been at these meetings where it's all finger pointing like the spider-man meme where you know like well these guys got to do better because they're fertilizing their lawns and it's who's going to stop that and just kind of this game of finger pointing and i think you've done a good job of trying to make it about including everybody and kind of having everybody say okay here's where we could improve our you know our spot and and how do we go about doing that so yeah it's it's very good and certainly with this project with this program that we have in ashwabanon dutchman creek under adaptive management we're able to come in and um, provide some education some guidance and technical assistance you know, we do implementation of conservation practices by bringing some funding and, and helping assist with, with more traditional funding streams. 
Um, and then verification and follow through. We want to make sure that what we're what we're recommending and what's what's being installed is actually it's working. That it's doing what it should be doing, and um, it's kind of exciting to to see that from start to finish of evaluating, working hand in hand with in in this case a lot of agricultural um, producers and landowners and um, meeting with them to see what how their farm operation works. And this is often I say we. It's a combination of you know conversations between New Water. Um, agronomy staff, county land conservation, to really understand their program, uh, what they have. And then, um, you know, talk about different conservation approaches that could work on their on their land, within their farming practices, with their farm plans. And, um, you know, what can, we do, what can we do to install some, to work with conservation and enhance the water leaving their farm? One thing, Jeff, I appreciate and I think is working well is obviously our farms are so used to being regulated right the you name it comes in and says you have to do this that and the other thing and I think I've appreciated that you guys have not taken that approach and I I hope and I think that the success of the project is in one factor of that reason because it's not this hammer that's coming down it's okay we have this problem can we work at it together here's some ideas we have and we can help you get to those and still knowing that the farm has to be profitable, right? Like we're not going to change your profitability. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, we are, we're a voluntary program and, and I think oftentimes that works very well for us because we can not come in with the hammer. We can try to come in with the carrot and try to see where we can work together, understand each other's needs. Um, our driver is obviously improved water quality. Um, in a farm, it, it's profitability and also, you know, maintaining a, a long-term sustainable farm that they can, you know, maintain their soil health and keep that to be productive to future generations. So being very respectful of all those needs is, is really, really key. So there is no one-size-fits-all. There's no silver bullet. Um, we, we don't walk into every farm and say, what you need to do is this. It's much more of a conversation. It's taking a walk on those agricultural acres, which, which all of you have been a part of. And, um, you know, putting all of our heads together, looking at it and saying, what can we do? What would be opportunities here uh, that work in this operation could improve the operation and also improve water quality as well. So that overlap of, of all those circles kind of of interest, if you will. I thought Matt brought up before some of the the different things like cover crops and no-till that we kind of first think of as agronomists and as farmers. But I think the thing that surprised me the most was the use of like two-stage ditches and some more sort of permanent structures. What are some other permanent structures that you've seen and what, what do you think is ones that are sort of work the best or ones that, you know, were out of the outside the box that we didn't think of originally that you've used a lot more in the last five years? Sure. We have done a lot of uh, filter strips or buffer strips along the stream. That's that's a really a, a good gain there. Um, a lot of grass waterways and critical area planting. So grass waterways pretty straightforward. Critical area plantings are a little bit more of those shallow depressions in the field drainage ways that just establishing some good grass and sod there can make a nice improvement. Uh, we've done a lot of that work, but you mentioned two-stage ditch is um, a practice that we've started working with more in the area. Um, kind of has a dual benefit of some improved drainage, but also some added water quality improvements. So just having that that bench along the waterway 
um, that's vegetated can slow that, that water down, capture the sediment, capture the topsoil if it's running off that field, and then um, you know slowly release that into the stream. It also adds a really great uh, floodplain or flood benefit, so it helps keep that water within the stream, either the primary channel or out into those benches, rather than flooding out into the field sometimes. So that's new and upcoming, a little bit more coming yet on that. Um, also, and we've that, done... That one's interesting with the, the first stage... The goal is to always have it flow through that first stage. I think we've seen that with some ditches where they just either stop flowing completely and then in the spring they're just way above the banks. So this is nice where that first stage is kind of always a continuous flow. And then like you say, those benches or the second stage is sort of, yeah, it looks like it kind of overtakes the channel, but that's designed to do that and kind of flow over those benches and then seep back. And just been a really neat thing that i you know that we've we've never seen before and the more you look at them the more it goes okay that does make some sense that we want that continuous flow like a channel like it should be and then have these areas where it can you know if you get some early spring rains and floods it, it can handle that right I, I think they're much more common in like in ohio area okay um i was at a conference very early in my time with watershed work and I remember coming back with this this new idea, this two-stage ditch, and everybody looked at me like, what is that? I've never heard of such a thing before. And now here we are, the last couple of years, we've installed a couple miles of two-stage ditches. So it's been really successful. I mean, other things that we've done, like water and sediment control basins, just almost like a little stormwater pond in a field, right? It, it takes that, captures some of that water, um, lets it infiltrate into the soil, uh, rather than just immediately going into the stream. So... Um, we've done some wetland restoration projects. Um, we're looking at doing some stream bank restoration projects. So things that are, are not your traditional, like you said, cover crops, no-till type practices. The best one with your, your Waskob was in the Silver Creek, the large project that we did on one of the farms. And that completely, it helped drainage, um, basically adding some areas where the water could pool and go in a pipe underground and then discharge into a essentially a wetland at the end because the alternative was like i don't know five miles of grass waterways like it was totally going to chop the field up and just make it unfarmable and just talking about profitability right of farms where that farm a 250 acre field would have turned into like you know five 45 acre fields where now we can still keep it a large field we just gotta farm around a couple berms which no big deal and you could still keep that land base profitable so that was really a, a neat idea that was implemented right that was that was just a great example of where we come together look at an issue um, where there was some steeper slopes and some drainage areas that were eroding and uh, put our heads together to come up with a solution that worked for everybody uh, like you said uh, I don't remember how many but it was a network of grass waterways like a spider web and it made the field almost a 200 acre field if mm -hmm. I remember right um, very difficult, if not impossible, to farm. And after we were finished, there were there were three linear berms, if you will, um, following the slope um, or working their way down the slope. And I think we only removed a very, very small fraction. The field was about 98% farmable yet. Yeah. Uh, but really made a dramatic impact on, on the erosion on that field and uh, keeping that topsoil where we need it. And, you know, we talked about walking fields you know you mentioned that we were part of those and i remember 
doing the field walk on that and there was a spot where i could actually take the four-wheeler down into one of those eroded ditches so it really you don't see that anymore it's really a, a good improvement right and that that field in particular i remember we've um it's been under no-till and uh mm-hmm. some cover crops as well so kind of this this suite of practices you know not just like i said not a one-size-fits-all but that wascob addressing the immediate flow and then um securing that that soil and building that soil health has really made a dramatic impact and that field has probably had more tours on it than any other field <laughs> in silver creek i can talk about standing on that that highest point kind of that apex on the field looking down and explaining that to probably a dozen tour groups at least and the drone photos of that have been spread far and wide as well i think even beyond the practice side of things whether it's structural or agricultural um, you've helped put new equipment and other things that for people to try in the watersheds too which has been i think valuable for a lot of the farms that want to try a practice, but they don't want to make the initial investment of buying their own equipment and changing how they're running their operations. So having some of these things available, whether it's through the county or through New Water or these partnerships has been really valuable to the watershed. Yeah, that's something we, early on, we decided if you were going to try to promote certain conservation practices, you had to have the equipment to at least demonstrate or or let people give it a try. So um, our first endeavor at that was we did receive a grant from the Fund for Lake Michigan to purchase a, a large interceder. It was a six-row um, interceder technologies, I think, um, interceder. And uh, the whole point was let's get it out there um, and allow farmers to give it a try, experiment with it. It might not be the perfect tool, um, but give them an opportunity without having to go purchase one um, to see how that that type of operation could work on their farm. So. That was just the very beginning um, in partnership with Outagamie County Land Conservation and Brown County. Um, there, there are a lot of pieces of equipment now available throughout the watershed, and that actually um, became a good problem. Um, so many pieces of equipment, um, trying to find places for all them, and I think it was a lot of uh, borrowed and, and rented sheds from farmers in the area. Uh, I remember talking to Greg Bannock at Outagamie County one day saying, you know, we kind of have a, a good problem. We have so much equipment, and we need a place to put it all. So uh, came up with this brainstorm that, boy, wouldn't it be great if we had a shed, a facility, where this stuff could all be stored, and it could be that central hub um, for for farmers to come and look at it, um, to pick it up and give it a try. So that eventually, over a period of time, became um, what we now have as the acronym is the SHED, uh, the Soil Health Education and Demonstration Facility. Um, and that was a partnership between New Water, Outagamie County, and Oneida Nation. And Oneida Nation essentially offered up a 30-acre piece of, of property um, where our partnership was able to construct a shed, a large pole barn, and much of the equipment from the area is now stored in that building. And in addition to the equipment that's stored there and the opportunity to come and look at and pick it up, there's also... Um, quite a few acres of of test plots that are in that facility as well. And it has really become kind of our hub. And ironically, I mean, it worked out really well that it's in the Eshwabanon Dutchman Creek watershed. So (laughs) very, very close to um, the farmers that we do work with. And it's just become a great opportunity to um, showcase equipment, um, showcase different cover crop and tillage practices. And um, the nice thing is they're... You know, our team, a collective large team of individuals that kind of plan out what to put in those plots, 
we can do some kind of wild and crazy things and see how it works and, and showcase that rather than asking, you know, um, one of the farmers that we work with to, to do it on their property. So um, it's it's been really successful, and I'm, I'm sure some of your farmers have used that equipment that you work with and hopefully have had some experience with that. Yeah, I've been to the, the shed a few times, and uh, even when it was just a level piece of gravel before the actual construction. Um, and, it, yeah, it's neat to be able to have those types of facilities where you can bring people to show off not only the equipment, but like you said, those test plots and everything that, that make, um, you know, make you think when you're looking at it like, oh, okay, maybe I could do this, as opposed to just talking about an idea where you have no visual sense of it. So Right. The most exciting thing with like the first interceder that we purchased and some of this trial equipment now is that it has spurred all sorts of innovation. And I'm seeing people saying, I like the concept, but I'd like it different. So um, we have farmers who we work with on our program that have built their own um, interseeders or, you know, cover crop seeders or all different um, techniques of working with cover crops and no-till. And it has, it has, to me, it has spurred innovation in the area. And some farmers have gone out and purchased equipment, you know, retail um, it's also pushed a number of um, the manure haulers in the area to use some different technology for incorporating their manure and, and working with some of the farmers who use uh, lower disturbance and no-till application. All right, so we've talked egg, we've talked, um, you know, stormwater, or not stormwater, but sewer water management, but outside of even those two, there's still more projects going on with with new water and the adaptive management side. So what else outside of ag is going on that, um, you know, you can highlight as far as different programs? Sure. Um, so just outside of agricultural areas, um, we are very involved working with the Austin Straubel International Airport. Um, they have a large footprint in the area. Um, they have a lot of pavement and and a lot of processes that go on there. So we've worked with them pretty closely with our pre-treatment program at work and also through our watershed efforts. Um, they have, you know, plain de-icing that happens this time of the year. So uh, collecting that de-icing fluid and, and getting that properly contained and treated is part of our work that we do. Um, but then the airport also does, this kind of overlaps back into ag, but the airport does own a lot of agricultural land that they rent out. So... Um, we were part of uh, working with them to become um, certified for, with the Alliance for Water Stewardship, or AWS certified. And that is, you know, kind of showing their environmental stewardship. So we will be continuing to work with the airport um, through the future, installing some of these more traditional agricultural conservation practices, while also working within their limitations of um, aviation safety as well. So pretty exciting working with the airport um, also, in the last year or two, we've been working with Wisconsin DOT, um, a little bit of hand-holding there and working together on the I-41 expansion project and the South Bridge Connector project. So um, this inter interconnects with new water in a few ways. Obviously, we have um, you know sewer interceptors through some of that area that we have to make sure we coordinate. Uh, but then we're also looking at some of the areas of land that are being impacted by that project and seeing if there are ways that we can enhance that. Um, to improve water quality. So, you know, there's some, some little nooks of land and maybe we can, um, you know, do some prairie um, pollinator planting and things like that. Uh, so we are working with both DOT and it'll be more with the county on some of that impacted land there. 
Um, I mentioned earlier, uh, we're doing some wetland restoration efforts. Um, this past year, we installed a, a large or completed a large wetland restoration project on some Oneida land there. Uh, that did actually fall in agricultural land that was um, pretty troublesome to farm. Um, but we've we found some great opportunities to do some wetland restoration there. Um, and we have some future projects lined up in wetland restoration efforts as well. Um, stream bank restoration, um, this will primarily end up in more of the urban areas of the community. Uh, the downstream areas of both Ashwaubenon Creek and Dutchman Creek tend to be um, mostly urban and with a little bit steeper slopes. So we, as we inventoried, we walked about 20 miles of stream um, between Eshwabanon Creek and Dutchman Creek, just looking at opportunities and areas that had erosion and had needed some some work to be done. Uh, so from that inventory, we will be starting to work on um, restoring some of those highly eroded stream banks in the communities that we serve. So uh, working there with them, and then, you know, that also couples with a lot of other um, municipality coordination. So uh, they like new water with a permit. Um, communities have a stormwater permit that they have to meet for runoff in their communities. And there's a lot of synergy, a lot of places where we can work together on um, our efforts for water quality and their efforts for meeting their stormwater permit, whether there's, uh, you know, new developments um, being put in, new subdivisions, um, new businesses coming in, a lot of opportunities there. So I'm pretty excited about all these other um, aspects where, you know, I've worked with, with each of you mostly on the agricultural side of things, but um, definitely have our, our hand in a bunch of other efforts throughout Green Bay area. You mentioned at a meeting we had the other day, um, a tree planting grant too, which Bill so kindly volunteered me to come up with a jingle for you. But all I can, all I have is stuck in my head is that, uh, I think it was the National Arbor Day Foundation, the plant a tree, trees for tomorrow. Um, you, so you didn't get nothing yet. I, I don't have anything for you. Uh, Matt, you disappointed me. You I'm always sorry, impress me with your, <laughs> your jingles. But, uh, but yeah, what is, what's that uh, looking like as far as where are you looking to get trees put in? Is it just I call you up, hey, I want to put some trees in, give me some money? Like what, what's going on? Sure. We were able to um, write a grant and receive some funds from the U.S. Forest Service uh, a couple of years ago. And um, it's kind of a, a multifold project where we're able to um, bring in some funds to get some trees planted in the communities that we serve. So Oneida Nation and the 15 communities that we serve were all eligible to receive funds. So we, we kind of polled each of the communities and asked if they had interest in planting trees, what their plans were coming forward. And then they ultimately committed to planting a certain number of trees and we could get them funding for a certain amount of that. Um, so through that effort, um, we were able to, with the first grant, um, plant over 3,000 trees in those local communities. And that's between grant funds and then matched funds. So some of those communities had, you know, they budgeted for tree planting as well, which is often how grants do work. They say, you know, if you, if you have some in-kind, some funding that you'll provide, you say, if you'll plant, plant a tree, we'll offer to plant a tree as well. So uh, these communities... Um, have committed a quite a bit of time to planting, like I said, over 3,000 trees. And it's been a huge success. So, it, you know, obviously trees are beautiful. Um, they provide oxygen, but they also help um, absorb moisture in the soil. And, and it's a stormwater measure, if you will. So we think of that, about that more in our green infrastructure side of things outside of agriculture, where trees can really provide a great benefit to our community. And the timing is also perfect uh, with our emerald ash borer issue. 
that many of these <laughs> communities. My question to you is going to be how many were ash trees? Yeah. Um, Zero. Yes. Uh, none of the new ones probably yes. were. Um, although I believe there is a new strain of, of ash that is supposed to be resistant to the oh, ash borer. But much of this is trying to overcome the loss of trees in these communities or if it's in newer areas, new developments, they're they're planting new trees. So it is amazing to me that the technology going into urban planning that way now is they're not just planting one kind of tree, so we don't have the train wreck of the ash borer. You know, you plant a bunch of different types and all kinds of stuff. So. Right. It's a it's a I couldn't even begin to list all of the trees, but they have to be native trees and okay. they have to be, you know, native to Wisconsin and they try to plant trees that are resistant to our currently known pests and diseases, right? But um, diversity is always the key, just just like in cropping practice. If you planted all the same thing and you had a bad year, you might lose it all. Um, with with trees, mix have a good mix, a good variety throughout these communities, and even in your own yard um, can save you from having a, a complete wipeout. Yeah. So it, that's that's it, been exciting. Yeah, even going back to, was it Dutch elm in the 70s? The Dutch elm disease, yeah. And supposedly enough of these ash that are... A lot of ash trees are planted after Dutch elm, so it's like, yeah, we're. It took us two iterations maybe to figure it out, but at least we're getting it. Matt, you have to come up with a jingle. Just hating on ash borer. I, you went too positive with that. You should just go to. I, I do have very, four uh, ash trees in my yard, <laughs> right? So, right. That are are not all dead yet. Well, I think one one's pretty much dead. The other three are probably not. Long for this world, so yeah, I, I've, got, not, I've got some anger for the uh, yes, ash borer. for yeah. the uh, <laughs> pent up, just, pent up aggression. Just let that release, and you can uh, yeah. you come up with it. <laughs> there you go. I have one in my backyard that's waiting for the chainsaw right now. So, yes, um, but you know, besides tree planting, there's some other things that we've been working on at New Water that are are pretty exciting that have us working in the community. This we're part of this East River Collaborative, um, so focusing on the East River, which has has been a flood-prone area in downtown Green Bay historically, and it has often been looked at as, as what's the issue downtown that's causing the flooding? Well, this East River Collaborative was an effort with the Nature Conservancy, UWC grant, and New Water in a partnership to take a more broad watershed approach. So looking all the way from the headwaters, which takes you up to like Hollandtown area, um, all the way down to downtown Green Bay, and it has brought, it's, it, there have been a number of events, um, some great education, and has brought everyone together from, you know, local business owners, residents, um, farmers, um, elected officials, just trying to look at the issues that we have at hand. And this kind of goes full circle back to some of the things we talked about before of um, some of the conservation practices that can be installed in agriculture also have a really big impact on that downstream flooding. So, um, building soil health, more soil, you know, more in, better infiltration in the soil. Um, some of these like two-stage ditches, wascobs, different practices. Um, I didn't even talk earlier about egg runoff treatment systems. So kind of these stormwater retention ponds in egg lands. All these things can have um, dual benefit in egg land, but also really benefit downstream. So it's 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 everybody working together um, to come up with an approach. So that that's been a really exciting effort. That has gotten a lot of traction, a lot of publicity um, for these different different groups working together. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> My father-in-law lives not too far from the East River, and so if I go to his house or pass to some of the other stuff around, it's there's a, a set of um, houses and like some soccer fields and stuff that always like eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Those were like 
underwater constantly. No soccer here. And it's like, oh, yeah, that must be fantastic to live there. I mean, just thinking about how how much your basement must flood and all the, all the different water issues. Um, so it's good that, yeah, they're, they're just looking at a solution because obviously there's a lot of development there that would be t- unfortunate to have to take those houses out of there and people's obviously would lose out on that. So it's it's a positive thing that... Um, the pro- project can hopefully have an impact on that. Absolutely. So. Yeah, I mean, just historically, we, you know, first settlers settled along the river, and in some cases on the high ground, and in some cases maybe a little too low. Um, so um, in 18 and 19, I, I still have, vision, you know, images of uh, rafts on the street rescuing people from their homes and homes being condemned, and um, nobody likes that. You know, everybody wants to be able to go home at night and put their feet up and not be um, worrying about either sewage in their basement or flood water from, from the river nearby. So Which, anything that we can do there is a huge impact. To be honest, flood water from the East River might as well be sewage. No. <laughs> not just, <laughs> no. just kidding. Just I wasn't sure you're going with the East River. I thought you were going to go to like some sort of cement shoes type of oh, thing. Oh, the bodies. That, yeah. yeah. I don't think the, the bodies I, in the East River We're a little different either. East River yeah. up here than it is to right. the south, the yeah. East River. But. Capiche. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, just I'll say within New Waters facility as well, we've tried pretty hard to be, you know, pretty good stewards of the environment. One of the last upgrades that we did at our facility, we installed uh, two anaerobic digesters. um, And those digesters will digest the solids from the wastewater treatment process. And the biggest benefit of that is that, uh, well, they're, they're huge, first of all. If you haven't seen them, this is what you, first thing you would see going over the Leo Frigo Bridge uh, they're 110 feet tall. They're like a silo, tall silo digester. Uh, they each hold about two, two and a half million gallons of, of wastewater, of solids. And we're able to um, generate enough electricity to power about 40% or feed about 40% of our energy needs at the facility. So huge impact there, um, minimizing our, our electrical energy there, harnessing heat from that to heat our buildings. Heating, there's a there's a dryer system that helps dry those solids afterwards. So we pull the heat off the digesters and off the engines. So a lot of energy recovery there. And then more recently, we're starting to look at solar energy as well. Um, very good possibility we'd be looking at installing a solar farm in the near future as well to kind of trim some of those energy costs for us. I think throughout this conversation, we've really hit on the fact that it, it is a diverse process. It's adaptive management is not just something that's benefiting new water in itself but it's benefiting everyone around in the watershed and it's not a one-size-fits-all type thing it's not a you know here's just give them a pamphlet here's what you can do to to help type thing it, it requires a lot of energy and work and time and um, you know it's it's great that new water and a lot of these partners are willing to put that time in to help this project move along it has been really rewarding i have i've i'll say become very good friends and, and got to know a lot of people that I did not know before, and a lot of groups that didn't work together before now um, have many overlapping projects. I, I think sometimes we go to meetings and we start talking about projects, and it's hard to even sort out sometimes who's who's the lead on certain projects because the same group of players and the partnerships of agronomy, <clears throat> conservation, um, local nonprofits, um, all working together on these different projects. It's it's really really exciting. I think that's a great point, Jeff, is communication. It's something we've we've talked about, um, not only for us in, in our business, but with farmers. And having good communication is key. And one of my favorite 
examples of that is I went to a meeting once and it was, I think like USGS or somebody and, and DATCAP and a lady from DATCAP asked a question and the guy's like, oh, well, you'd have to ask DATCAP about that. And she's like, I am from DATCAP. Oh, and it was like that real, that aha moment of like, oh yeah, we should probably talk more because we didn't even recognize each other from the respective agencies. Like that communication important is just so key. Absolutely. I mean, just bringing the parties to the table, having that conversation face to face, getting away from that finger pointing, just sit down and have this, you know, understanding of what are our initiatives? What is everybody trying to accomplish? What do we all need to do? What do we want to do? And boy, we can get a lot more done when we just start working together and talking to each other. Absolutely. As we get more farms with digesters going up, that is one opportunity for farmers is wastewater treatments plants have been doing digesters for a long time. And not to say they're new to farming because they're not, they've been around in, in dairy farming for, you know, for a while as well. But that is one opportunity they could have as well as, is to learn from you, learn from, you know, your, your local wastewater treatment plant and go visit with them on what, what they've seen successful and not. I mean, they are going to be different. I mean, pumping human, you know, waste and doing things with that's a little different than dairy manure but there's a lot to be learned there and any anything that you know of over the time that you guys have learned with the digestion process that would relate to dairy farming your background knowledge of of dairy farming sure um you know i don't work hands-on with the digesters all the time but i know some of the things that are unique to wastewater is that um you don't have much control over what's coming to you um so um, new industry starts up a new process, different things. You know, we talked about the Packer games and the difference of uh, um, holidays and whether there's a lot of people in town or a lot of people gone. Um, flows vary a lot. Um, what's actually coming to the facility can can change quite a bit. And it digesters, consistency is really a key key component. If you want to have your most successful digestion and, <clears throat> and energy production, from that, um, having consistent feed to the digester is really important. So um, our staff would talk about that a lot. We are um, we bring in, bring in some industrial waste to, to boost the energy production from that those digesters and figuring out how to, to, to feed that in to maximize that production um, of energy and at the same time keep the digesters happy. I mean, um, think about it like a big stomach. Um, what you feed into your stomach or how fast you feed it in can definitely impact how, uh, how your di- digestive system reacts. <laughs> and that's basically what it is. It's a big, warm um, stomach um, digesting the solids, the, the organics in there. So there are opportunities. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier about the tours. Um, there would be definite opportunities if anybody would like to come to our facility, check out the digesters. And part of that can easily be set up to um, to sit down and chat with our operations staff that work with those digesters every day. Um, they'll be a little different, and I'm sure there are a number of similarities between um, operations of um, equipment. Um, you know, if you're doing electrical generation, some of the you know experiences with our cat engine generators, or you know the biogas generators, the, just the equipment, the pumps, the maintenance, the all of that is very much the same. Um, and gas scrubbing, um, getting that, that gas stream clean enough to run through those engine generators is huge. Um, a lot of experience, a lot of, a lot of work has gone into getting that figured out. So 
Absolutely. I mean, um, if you're interested, um, go on our website. It's uh, www.newwater.us, and you can schedule a tour right on the website. Um, you just put it out there, and one of our staff will respond back, um, setting up a tour that, that meets your needs during our business hours. So um, there, are, there are occasional times of the year that we're not able to give tours just because of staffing and things going on, but for the most part, uh, we should be able to accommodate a tour and and the important part is with that um, we can kind of customize that tour um, the tour guide and some of the stops on the tour we can customize to meet the needs of the people who are coming through whether it's a you know a fourth grade elementary school class or it's a it's a group of uh, farmers who really are mostly intent on our solids handling and, and our digestion digestion process really good opportunity there yeah so i think just to bring it all home, it's it's a slow process. I think we're such a instant gratification culture now of, like, everything's got to be now and done. Um, but this is a slow process. I mean, we worked for, what, five, six years on Silver Creek. We're moving into Ashwaubenon and Dutchman Creek on, what, is this year five or four? Or where are we at? Uh, this is officially year two under year, the permits. That's right, officially two. So um, got a long ways to go, but it, it's not... An instant thing. We're not going to see, you know, instantaneous results, and that's I think something that's important to point out too is, you know, it, it takes time to to make these changes, and took time for things to get the way they were. So that's right. It, it took generations for the, our water quality in this area to get um, in the condition it is. I mean, and that's a result of <clears throat> you look back at history of you know industrialization and development, and you can go back to the logging era and all the things that have happened since civilization came to this area have all impacted water quality. So, you know, taking a step back, looking at that, um, if it, it took a long time to get that way, and we can make some very good, steady improvements on water quality, but it won't happen overnight. Um, but if we all work together and, and each do our part, we can definitely see a noticeable difference. And my hope is that, you know, we can work together on programs like this and uh, you know, leave a legacy, leave things better than for future generations than we found it, and um, hopefully, you know, we can eventually remove some of our local streams off the impaired waters list and um, enjoy even more benefits. I mean, I know a lot of people do enjoy fishing and swimming in in Green Bay, and um, with the improvements that we can make through some of these programs, we can make it just that much better. All right. Well, thank you, Jeff. We want to thank you for coming on the podcast today and sharing your insights from uh, New Water and their adaptive management program that we've been working with you on. And I want to thank the listeners also for tuning in today. And thanks for being here, Todd and Bill. Thanks for having us, man. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. And thanks, Jeff, for being yeah, here. Yeah, thanks, so. Jeff. Thank you. So, all right. Thanks for listening. And as always, happy farming.